Welcome to the Everything EC Podcast. I'm your host, Carla Ward, and joining me today is Kara Caudill, a dedicated early learning professional with a passion for all things early years and adult education. Kara is here to talk today about trauma and trauma-informed practice, specifically in regards to coming out of COVID-19 and how we need to remember to remember. This is a phrase that made a huge impact on me during our interview, and I hope it does to you as well after you've checked out today's podcast. So let's not waste any longer. Let's dive in so that we can remember to remember. Welcome to the show, Kara. I am so excited to have you to discuss a topic that is so crucial, especially right now in 2024. So welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. So before we dive in to the topic of trauma-informed practice, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, that big question, who are you? I mean, my last 10 years really speaks to who I am today. I've been studying the, the field of childhood education for 10 years. I started out as a registered early childhood educator, working with the public library system, supporting children and families through language and literacy and understanding children's behavior as an expression of needs and, you know, those strong attachments that we want to see. And then I kept concurrently going through studies and working. So I have my bachelor's uh, in applied science in child studies, which I concurrently studied while working in places like home child care as a consultant in early on child and family programming, eventually getting to my master's of education, which took me to the faculty of early childhood education side, which I absolutely love. And I also had some opportunity to work in pedagogical leadership. So who I am is a kind of patchwork system of all the experiences I've had. But I think what that really speaks to is my devotion and dedication to quality and wanting to understand the sector as a whole. Like there's so many agencies and organizations and positions that meet as if like a puzzle to create this picture of what is quality and how do we support children and families across the sector. Ooh. You just nailed it on the head there. And unfortunately, some of our puzzle pieces don't talk to each other. So sometimes it gets really, really difficult to figure out where those pieces go. So I think you are definitely on to something there. Yeah, thank you. And I think that's true. And, you know, you only know through the lens that you're looking at. So I've been really fortunate, really, really fortunate. And I'm excited now to bring that forward in my new-ish business, Coddle & Co. Consulting where I get to really kind of drive forward with my personal philosophy that's been influenced from all of these different areas and to provide support and try to bridge those gaps and bridge those perspectives across those different areas of the sector. So I'm really, really passionate to be here today and to be doing this work. That is so exciting. And I always say, you know, if you're not going to be in the classroom anymore, I'm not in the classroom anymore. Those are the people we want fighting the fight for us. Those are the people we want consulting. Those are the people we want bridging those gaps because you've been in quote unquote the trenches and you know what's going on, right? I love when people are advocating for early childhood outside of our sector, but unless you've been in a program with children and you understand their uniqueness, they miss people miss that deepness of what we truly need in this field. Yeah, it's it's so true and I think you really nailed it in the sense of those frontline folks. Like those are the folks that I have the most admiration for. They're out there. They're doing it every day. They're seeking answers. They're asking questions. They're finding solutions. They're not only supporting children, they're supporting families. And sometimes they're supporting themselves. So 
I mean, I think especially in relation to what we're going to chat about here today, I think those are the folks I'm really keeping in my mind and my heart. Absolutely. And that's the whole foundation for this podcast is to support the folks that are in the front lines working with children because we know you need us. We know you need the support. We've got your back and we are here to support you. So let's dive into talking about trauma-informed practice. Before we logged on today, I did say that I feel like the word trauma has really become a word that's getting thrown around a lot without a lot of true foundational understanding. So can you kick us off with a definition of trauma and then trauma-informed practice? Yeah. So it's like spot on trauma is kind of, it's a little piece of, it's a little piece of everyone, but it definitely has a bit of a trend kicking to it, especially with like the new age generations kind of, you know, referring to it in a slang term as well. But I think what we're talking about here is broadly trauma is, you know, a deeply disturbing or distressing experience or experiences, right? So an acute experience, a trauma experience, maybe a car accident or a single happening natural disaster. And then on the other hand, there's chronic trauma. So like ongoing exposure to family violence or substance abuse in the home, for example. Then, you know, it continues to go down the line to vicarious trauma. You know, the trauma that we maybe take on secondhand from folks who have shared it with us who ha- or who have experienced it in our circle. And then, you know, intergenerational trauma of that from generation to generation and how those that trauma is expressed, how it kind of manifests through the generations. So you can take it in so many different ways. But I think my own definition of trauma really comes from my research and background in trauma-informed practices in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's when me and trauma really got to know each other. I was seeing a lot about what was happening and I was like, what What really is this trauma-informed practice and how do we bring it to life in practice? How do we develop a strong understanding and then the confidence to support folks through these practices? And with the trauma-informed practice in response to the pandemic, what's really unique about that is through the research, I came to understand that that sort of trauma is really defined as like post-traumatic stress disorder expressions. So it's kind of this shortened, everyone experiencing this shortened window of tolerance and exacerbating personal traumas that are come from lived experience. So it's this common yet unique experience where folks may be exhibiting symptoms such as avoidance, intrusive thoughts, lingering feelings of stress, withdrawn behavior. Like these are kinds of those expressions of PTSD that are what I'm seeing and what I've studied as trauma-informed, or sorry, trauma in practice and, and how that's showing up across the sector. Interesting. And I can totally understand that. And I, I know that through that trauma, what we've seen in children is delayed social emotional regulation because of that response. Yeah. So honestly, that was basic, like from all of the findings in the research that I had completed, and this is so this is to give context during my graduate studies, I my focus was on trauma-informed pathways to restoring children's well-being post-pandemic. And the biggest finding was the perpetual strength and correlation of child outbursts and caregivers' punitive reactions, right? So a child has an outburst, a caregiver has a punitive reaction, it causes a worst outburst, causes a worst reaction, right? That concurrent relationship. And it doesn't feel good for anyone. I'm an educator. I've been an educator. I have a coach. I'm a mother. Like, I have a big heart for anyone who is on any end of that. And it's something really real. And we all have to kind of take the courage to talk about with vulnerability. 
because I think it is becoming a more and more shared experience across the board. I would agree. And I think you've nailed it is because it's not just one group that went through the pandemic. It's all of us. We all experienced the pandemic here in Canada, for sure. We all experienced it. So we're responding Well, we're reacting. The children are reacting and we're reacting together and it's not going well. Yeah. Like I always say, like for the sake of humanity, you know, like we're, we all have that in common. That's our common ground, right? Is humanity. And we are all human beings. And so we, we throw, there's also trending terms like capacity and resilience. And, you know, like, what does that mean? And how do we get it? Cause I think we all want it, <laughs> right? We want to feel it. We want to live it. We want to breathe it. And, um, a big, you know, topic that has, or a big focus that I've noticed going on in conversations around trauma-informed practice and how it affects children's development and well-being is around, you know, attachments. Like the attachment styles have been, you know, not as secure as they maybe once have been and children's emotional resilience and some of those social delays then causing peer relationship and disruption with relationships. But what we also kind of want to mirror that is caregivers well-being so like what were the impacts to caregivers well-being and then we're looking at you know deterioration to mental strain worry for family health concerns about the future interparent or interrelationship conflict exhaustion like the list kind of goes on right and i think we can all relate in one way or another but the the key i think that i've found with my coaching and leadership with early childhood educators is many folks, they come to this profession from a place of passion. And so it can carry really heavy on our shoulders. Like we need to understand that our capacity is also a part of our conditioning, you know? Oh, absolutely. And early childhood educators are nurturers by nature. That's why we got into the field in the first place, because we care, but we cannot carry the weight of everybody on our shoulders especially if we're not handling it well ourselves. So how do we work our way back to a place of happy humanity, I guess, is the best way for me to ask that question. Yeah. And that's a great question. And it really comes down to, you know, like on macro and micro systems. Like I remember, and I don't know why I remember these things, you know, there's certain things that live on with us. I remember during my undergrad, there were some shocking numbers around the return on investment in early learning right? So it's like for every dollar invested in adult education, you get a dollar return for that person's development and growth and stability in society. And then it was something like $7 on every dollar invested in early childhood education and care is returned, but it was up to a staggering $18 on the dollar return on investment for our most disadvantaged children. Okay. So these are children living in poverty who may be in considered marginalized or disadvantaged in some way. And the other piece that really came out in correlation to the research of post-pandemic was the polarization of inequities, right? So when we look at those kind of social determinants of health, like food, housing stability, income, access to education and healthcare, social systems and connections alone, right? Mental health services. There is this huge polarization of inequities that kind of really exacerbated those impacts. And like, I would love to see those numbers now, because I think that would be some big grounds for moving those macro systems to prioritizing uh, trauma-informed pathways. Absolutely. I mean, I think about how much groceries are right now, right? Like that is definitely going to shift how people function, how much access people have to certain things. It's going to, it's going to perpetuate 
the danger that some of our students are already in. And it's just going to make the inequity even bigger. And it's scary. It is very, very scary because we're talking about investing in children. Well, a healthy meal is an investment in a child. But if a family cannot afford a healthy meal, what does that mean for that child's development? Oh, it's so true. Like early childhood education and care is so quickly becoming early childhood care and education. Like we know that we have to have that well-being, that stability, that sense of connectedness before learning is going to occur, before we're going to be courageous or take risks. And that's, again, for the love of humanity, like that's across the board. And so when we look at educators and caregivers, and specifically in licensed child care, I think about still about 98% of the workforce is female gendered. And then when you look at 81% of lone families are women led. So it's like that in itself, this is families taking care of families, right? We always have been. But when you look at the capacity and just wanting to buffer and mitigate those impacts, I mean, it's families taking care of families, taking care of families. We're all kind of in the muck together in the trenches per se. Yeah. And how do you pull somebody out of the trenches if you're on the same level as them right now? Right. If there's no ladder and hopefully we can shed some insight today on, you know, where to find that ladder, how to help each other kind of start to see the light at the end of this, because it is 2024. There is still no, it's improving but it's not getting better as quickly as it should be. Children are still behind social emotionally and educators are leaving the force at an alarming rate because they just can't, they don't have the capacity. And I can totally understand that because they're not paid well. Their mental health is not doing okay. And how do you support a child whose mental health is not okay when yours is not okay? It is. It's, it's, there's so many, you know, harrowing realities that we're dealing with here. And while I definitely don't want to get stuck in that and we won't today, so keep listening, it's, it's coming, you know, but it is just, it's so true. And just to validate that. And I think there's, you know, there's unity in the good, you know, when good things are going on, we can really unite, but there is unity in the despair as well. And I think that's what a lot of what we're seeing is, Hey, you know, on my side of the fence, the grass isn't so green. Looks like yours isn't that green either. Hey, guess we have something in common. Like we're connecting through through that. You know, ideal, no, reality, yes. And I think as people continue to move forward, it's going to be about those, that present, that now, the relationships in front of you, the what you can do with what you have. And we actually have, you know, a lot more resources and a lot more power to reclaim within ourselves than sometimes we recognize because we've become quite dependent on outer systems like funding structures for materials. And, you know, we're really regaining that love for secondhand items and offerings to families to say, what loose parts do you have laying around? And, you know, gaining connection through those really personal humanity rooted ways, I think is going to be one of the pathways that we kind of dig ourselves out of this mess that we find ourselves in. Absolutely. I just did a presentation not too long ago, and I was talking about how people truly love helping children and they love helping education, but sometimes they don't know how. And we are now able to reconnect with our community because we aren't isolated anymore. And I said, I was encouraging the staff at this particular center. I said, go next door to the coffee shop, introduce yourself, let them know that you're here, you're from the childcare program. And, you know, ask them if you can do a story time in their coffee shop one day. We did that years ago and it was amazing. And because it builds that community and we won't get through this without our community. And 
I mean, I make a great connection with Starbucks of they used to donate boxes to my center for my loose parts. And all I had to do was ask like, hey, I have a childcare program. This is what we need. Are you able to help at all? And people want to help. And if we give them the opportunity, it doesn't have to be monetary. They're so willing to do it. It is so true. And I was just saying this last week to a cohort of students, like we need to remind each other to remember every single person that, you know, you come into contact with, they've been a child. Maybe they've had a child, a child in their family, perhaps in their neighborhood. Like for the sake of childhood, we do have that in common. And we need to remind each other to remember your own childhood and what brought you joy to remember some of your most meaningful experiences, which for me, I always say I was country girl gone city uh, because I grew up in the country and came to the city for post-secondary education and job opportunities, of course. But some of my most fondest memories were just outside with sticks in the trees and the birds and the butterflies, you know, and, and it's good. Like nature-based education is a huge passion of mine and it's, it's good for everyone, right? Everyone's well-being. I think when we look at holistic development and when we think about how do we move forward, you know, we've always been concerned with the domains of development, right? Like social, emotional, physical, cognitive, linguistic. And what was interesting as well is through the research, as it shifts, the frame of well-being is actually shifting from such a focus on physical and develop, physical and cognitive to now such a heavy influence on social and emotional and spiritual well-being. Right. And so I think someone put it into perspective for me like this. All the domains are on the bus, but social and emotional are driving the bus now. They are driving the bus. And so we need to take that lens when we're looking at our, when we're taking inquiry in the classroom, when we're asking questions to our colleagues, while we're doing observation, the biggest, some big themes that really came out of that in terms of what that looks like in practice was responsive relationships, collaborative inquiry and reflective practice, and the environment as the third teacher. Now, most fascinating to me, the environment as a third teacher, we often look at that as physical, right? So like, what are the colors and the lighting and the sounds? And how are the materials organized? What materials are available? Do you have a variety of play areas? And when we think about social environments, in my practice anyway, we often look at schedules, routines, transitions, what's the social atmosphere, but where trauma-informed practice invites us to expand our perspective is to include emotional environments. Ooh. Most often this is talked about as sensory needs. Okay. Off the hop. That's where I see it the most, you know, how is the environment affecting a child's mood? But now we're digging even deeper to say, how is the teacher's mood affecting the atmosphere? What is like the, the climate, like negative or positive? How often are like harsh or reactive approaches happening? And not with judgment, but to seek to understand and say, oh, wow, like that was 70% of our day. Like that's where we need to prioritize. And then your wondering becomes, I wonder what we could be do, do differently to stabilize the atmosphere, right? Like that is the focus we need to take going forward. Oh my gosh, you've just hit so many great points that I can relate to as an educator. When I started reflecting on what I could control, which is me, and not controlling the children in my program and changing how I responded instead of reacted to situations, it was a game changer for my classroom environment, for my teaching practice, and for my love of teaching. It brought back this love of wanting to be in the classroom. And you don't realize it until you take that reflection piece in and say, okay, how did I respond to this situation? Like I, when I first started, I was a yeller. 
And I hate that I was a yeller because I can have a conversation with a child without raising my voice. It is absolutely possible. And it is so much more effective. But it wasn't until I had to change my behavior and my approach to really start making a difference. Yeah. And like tying back to that, reminding each other to remember, do you remember, you know, when we used to whisper when children were too loud, right? Like that was a core practice. It was like when they're elevating, you know, you're going to kind of mitigate that by this, this like, oh, she's whispering. Well, I want to whisper too. And all of a sudden it brings it down. And when as an educator, you need those small wins. You need to feel that I did, I did a good job. I got the outcome I was looking for. My strategy worked. Like we need some more of those wins under our belts that we can gain momentum. And I say to my students all the time, they're looking for these long-term outcomes, but the root of momentum is moment. Be in the moment and that's all you can do. Absolutely. And it's funny because you talk about going back to, you know, whispering, even singing. I don't know if you've found this, but so I love to sing with my students. It's my favorite part of my day. I preferred it rather than commanding. And I got the same result in a much more positive way. But I go into programs and I'm like, where's all this singing? Because again, that pandemic here in Ontario, you weren't allowed to sing because it spread germs. And yeah. nothing like shattered my heart more than the fact that educators were no longer singing, which is good for their health and their enjoyment of their program. But the children were no longer listening to that singing either and forming those connections with their educators. Yeah, reminding each other to remember singing like and and when we look at singing now, and especially in like our growing diversity and multiculturalism, sing in your language, sing a song that you loved as a child growing up, sing a song that was sung to you. And, you know, children will find enjoyment just in hearing your voice and just feeling a sense of connectedness to, to you. Yeah, I always I was just actually teaching creative arts last week. And I was like, listen, none of us are Christina Aguilera. OK, we're not shooting that high. Like we just need to take any direction you're going to give and put it into a song and they will sing along. It's routine and rhythm, getting away from schedules and routines, getting into routine and rhythm, finding a beat in your day. Oh, yeah. Yes. I love this remembering to remember because it is so easy to forget. Yeah. And when we look at those, like what really happened for those social environments, like the restriction of cohorts, like having to be masked, be gowned, be all of these things. And it's almost as if once we took the masks off, it was like a, what now, you know, and, and, and we're, everyone's doing the best they can for sure. And educators are faced with some days, what feels like impossible situations. But the reality is as well, that when we look at these social determinants of health and we look at caregivers and children experiencing them simultaneously, Something like food stability and housing stability, we can't fix that in the moment. We can't fix that in the day-to-day. But a vital, vital social determinant of health is support systems and social connection. And we have that every day. We have that with children. We can foster that with families and especially on teams. If there's anything that I hope leadership teams are doing out there, it is fostering social connections on their teams, again, for the sake of humanity. Yes, absolutely. It. I mean, we always talk about, you know, it takes a village. And- your village is your center. Like that is the people that you spend more, you spend more time with the people on your team than you do with your home family sometimes. And you need that connection. You need that work family and you need that support. So I love that. That is hands down, excellent advice. Yeah. And I think that's really where 
that prioritization where the research really said, okay, we need to prioritize professional development that also embeds choice and opportunity. Okay. Not just everyone's getting this, like there needs to be choice and opportunity. And I always say a huge motto of mine is elevate voice through opportunity and choice. Like we can have a mandate, we can have something that we're working toward, but there's always room for opportunity and choice. And that's where diversity thrives. And that's where that concurrent relationship between elevating knowledge and motivation happens simultaneously because it's choice and opportunity that empowers self-efficacy or the belief, you know, I can do it, like that belief. And with the collaborative reflection and inquiry, you know, that really comes through on those social connections. So like, it just kind of makes sense, you know? And I think when we look at like macro systems, there needs to be space for that. And right now, a lot of folks are like, I don't even have time to check in with someone when they're coming in. Like I have three children who are just out of sorts. And when we think about trauma-informed practices, absolutely, we need advocacy. Okay, we need research. And like right now, there's a little bit of a gap in research because trauma-informed practices newish to early childhood education like we need more research and it's very multiple multiple disciplinary multidisciplinary there we go in uh in perspective because it comes from all these different niches like healthcare and education and you know so on so once we get some of those macro pieces in place we can really start to change policies and legislation advocate for more funding that's responsive to trauma induced by systems right like how are systems perpetuating this issue when we think about the pandemic that was a system that isolated and all of these things really created and nurtured the growth in trauma and its expressions and then also prioritizes supports for trauma, right? To say, okay, like we need more in mental health supports. We need, and we're seeing a bit now with Canada wide early learning, like we need spaces for our, our most disadvantaged children to have those opportunities to bridge those gaps. But on the macro system, that's definitely something that needs to be happening in a very big way. Absolutely. And I'm just going to have you circle back actually, just because for some, and I, for me a little bit as well is, can you back up and talk a bit more about the definition of macro and micro? Like what would be considered a macro? What would be considered a micro? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're thinking macro, I'm thinking like municipal, provincial and federal, like I'm thinking bigger government systems as a nation, as a province what's happening. Um, and then, of course, coming down to municipalities. And as we know, on a federal level across Canada, there are laws, there are policies, there are funding pockets that then get dispersed to the provinces and territories, which have a bit of autonomy over how they disperse those to the municipalities and regions within them, which then gets us down to what I would consider our, ma our micro systems, our multi-site organizations, our standalone programs, our classrooms, our like anything on that level. So I think that's how I would define it. Would you add anything? Add anything no, to that? that's perfect. That was how I was interpreting it, but I'd never actually heard it referred to as macro and micro. And I was like, okay, if I haven't, I'm sure I'm not the only one. So I was like, I want to just make sure that we're all on the same page. And the way you were talking, it sounded exactly like that. But I was like, I'm just going to confirm just to make sure that I'm understanding properly. So thank you for that. Yeah, you live in post-secondary long enough. You just start <laughs> rhyming the words and, and you forget, right? You're like, oh, I, I better just speak about this in the descriptive form. <laughs> no, and it's great because, you know, for me, who's not, who hasn't been in school in goodness, I don't even know how long. All of my learning comes from professional development workshops or conversations with people like you. So I love the learning piece and I love gaining that information. And it's good to know this vocabulary. So when you're having this conversation, you can think about it in a macro micro way. So I think it's very important. Yeah. Parallel off that with the macro to piece to then now we're talking about micro, like 
what the what those bigger policies and systems do for creating space is where organizations want to be looking at professional development that's responsive to their community, bringing awareness up on knowledge and understanding of trauma-informed practice, but also having some coaching. Like coaching is so huge in mentorship right now to say, let's apply what we know and understand. Like yes. let's put that into practice. Because I think that right now is where I'm seeing it stop. Is that the knowledge and understanding piece? We've attended it. Now where are the supports to help you put that into practice? Yes. And I think in like the business world, we know we see more coaching and consulting and it's trickling into education, but I don't think nearly at the rate because there isn't funding yet available on the micro level for investing in a consultant to take you from that knowledge to that application and critical thinking piece. Yeah, it's it's so true. And for, you know, the leadership teams of organizations, and especially those multi-site organizations that are kind of big hitters in communities across Ontario, it's reallocating your budget to not only professional development for trauma-informed practice, but looking at conditions for well-being for educators. Like a lot of things in our practice can be paralleled, you know, and yes. I and I know you know this, and a lot of folks working in leadership teams know this, right? When you want to inspire your team to look at enriching the environment, perhaps you enrich the staff room, right? And they're like, oh, wow, it feels kind of homey in here. I think I'm going to add a vase to the window plane of my classroom. Or, hey, they asked me what made me feel like at home. And now I see that in here and I feel connected. I'm, I think I'm going to do that with the children. And so I think that's what I would urge leadership teams to do the most is to parallel those practices of creating social and emotional environments that feel safe, that feel connected. And it's, again, it's going to get, there's no workshop that's going to teach you like the hows to do that in a way it's going to be talk to one another, ask questions, right? Like get to know each other again, because everyone has shifted so much, like get to know me now, because I am not the same person I was five years ago. One thousand percent like nail on the head that's exactly it and it's interesting because one of the big workshops that I do is how to run a staff meeting mm -hmm. and it's about how to host a staff meeting that your team actually want to attend and I get asked a lot do we have to meet every month and my answer will always be yes even if there is nothing pertinent, this is an opportunity for you to connect as a team because especially in childcare, you are on shift work. There are people who have never met the before and after school teachers if you didn't have a staff meeting because they are like ships in the night. And that staff meeting is such an important way to build that team dynamic because you need your community. Absolutely. And like brainstorming solutions to a challenge. I think that's one of the unique powers of collaborative inquiry is just holding space for different perspectives, right? Like we can, when we're faced with the same disruptive behavior or the same expression from a child, it can very quickly feel like I know what's happening here. But as soon as you invite collaborative inquiry, you're already holding space for multiple perspectives. And it's like, oh, that's what you see. Oh, well, now I have a bit more compassion because we've reframed the behavior. We've reframed the scenario or you've given me an example. Like it's until the end of the earth, educators are looking for concrete examples and practical strategies. And leadership teams will sometimes come to consultants or come to coaches and say, well, I need some examples, but it's like, well, get them talking. They have them. Everything you need is within yourself and everything you need is within your classroom. You just got to polish the windows a little bit and turn on the light. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, I think even in terms of parent interactions, sometimes how somebody takes what a parent has said can be very different to the way another staff member on that team would perceive it. 
And it's important to talk about it and not hold it in. Obviously not react necessarily, right? But respond and talk it out and say, is this how you're perceiving this? Or is there any validity in what this person is saying to me? Yeah, absolutely. And like tying it right back, that just sparked another kind of key point from the research on trauma-informed, which was that childcare is one of the first points of institutionalized care and access, not only for children, but for families as well. They get connected to those supports of the social inequities we talked about, like housing or food stability or mental health services. And it's also uniquely a place for caregiver mentorship, right? When they see, they might ask you about child development. They might ask you about infant feeding or positive guidance, they'll see you role modeling that as an educator. And that is so powerful. And it's almost this hidden value because I know educators don't always see that ripple effect that they're having when they care for that child, but it is the families that truly benefit from that as well. And, and I think that's huge. hundred percent. What would you say would be a great starter? Let's say, you know, everybody wakes up tomorrow morning and they want to be more informed in their practice around trauma. What would you say is the starting point for them if they could only pick one? Ooh, I would say if it's a frontline educator, I would say wonder about mood and atmosphere. Like take a pulse, generate a wondering. What are you curious about? That's what I would say to them. Are you curious about why What happens right before this disruptive behavior? Are you curious about why is it always right before lunch that the children seem to be more out of control or to feel more disoriented in their environment? And for leadership teams, I would say, put your heads together and look at your policies and procedures. Are there things that you can just take out of the way? Like, is there just gray matter that's floating around there? And is there maybe even room for like a trauma-informed intake screening. Like that was a big thing that came out as well. And I think that would be a great starting point because it would really help them again, take a pulse. Like, yes, this is nationwide and provincial and municipal, but it's, we want to look at what is in your control, like you said earlier. And, you know, very often I have seen organizations use what I, you know, way back on referred to as the Nipissing develop, like development screening now looksy. And so now it's like, well, If our lens is shifting, then what does that look like? And the biggest question that I really want to kind of leave folks wondering on is the question that was consistent across all the research and all the policyholders, and I don't have an answer today, but we will come to one collectively. Love this. How, How will education and care remain relevant and responsive for families and young children as a compass guiding question? How will we remain responsive and relevant for families and young children or key stakeholders? That's, yeah, that is not an easy one, but it's one that we can certainly use as our approach every day. How will I show up? How will I be responsive every day? Yeah. And I think it'll take us to some of the places that we're looking to find. And it certainly won't always feel good. It definitely won't always look good, but trauma-informed practices, it can't be done alone. It's a collective commitment on the micro levels and the macro levels, right? As organizations, as teams in a classroom, all the way up to our provincial leaders and how they're, how we're paving the pathways forward to restoring well-being for all. hundred percent. Kara, this has been incredible. I think there's so much value to take away today. Is there anything that we didn't touch on before I tell you or have you tell everybody where to find you? 
No, I think that's, you know, like this just comes from such a place of passion. And it's been so nice to just have an organic conversation with someone about this and just, you know, let it flow and to make those connections between theory and practice. I think this is some really good food for thought for getting folks going. And they know where to find us if we end up here again together. Yes, absolutely. And all the links will be below this podcast. So Kara, thank you so much for joining me today. And I look forward to having a follow-up conversation about this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. And for your folks who are listening and the Everything ECE podcast community, for folks who are maybe looking for that coaching or that consulting to put this into practice, as mentioned earlier, I'm building my business, Coddling Co. Consulting, and we offer workshops, public speaking, coaching, as well as courses and resources, and really dedicated to just uplifting the profession, inspiring and engaging so that we can do this really important work together and, and move forward in a really meaningful way. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kara. Thank you.